Welcome to the Tough Love and Second Chances podcast. My name is Tony Bennett and it's my privilege to write, produce and share the remarkable stories of golfers who refuse to be defined by their disability. Frankly, what started out as a goal to relate the stories of a few golfers has become much more. It is said that everyone has a story and that is true. For several years I told the stories of golf professionals, how they became good players, great coaches and top club professionals. As enjoyable as this was, the words of my guests on Tough Love and Second Chances and found in the Edgar Profiles supported by Ping have helped me on a journey of discovery and all the while being a much needed look into the human spirit. The openness of my guests is what makes their stories powerful, frequently revealing examples of how hope, courage and the opportunity to express oneself through the game of golf makes for a combination that can improve and even save lives. My guest today is James Gribble from Australia. James and I first met face-to-face in London, at Marble Arch to be exact, where we had our first chat over a coffee. That meeting led on to a couple more get-togethers, by internet and also in person. James told me the story of how he'd visited Africa as a strong and fit young man and left as a quadriplegic. It all changed for James in just a split second, but I guess that's the way that most accidents happen. One minute he was sat on a stool and the next he was lying on his back in the sand. This podcast was recorded over the internet and we had some challenges with the connection and microphones, but James's story outweighs the small sound issues that appear for a couple of seconds on a few occasions. James and I had started chatting and we were talking about what it was like for people the very first time they saw golf for the disabled. So the conversation starts and we're already mid-sentence. The journey that James has taken is worthy of a film and as I speak he's in the process of making that happen. In the meantime please enjoy my conversation with James Gribble. I think um, you know once you once you get past the initial um I, I guess I'd class it as kind of disbelief and awe that some of the guys have when they first see players with disability competing. Uh once they get past that, then you start to see the um, the the coaches who really understand and really get it. Because um, I think everybody when they first see players with disability playing, I think they're all a little bit in shock. They're all a little bit um, what's this? They can't quite understand it. They can't get it. And then yeah. the, as I say, then the ones that really get it, you see that they look way past the disability. Then they look at the person and start to understand the the swing that they make and how they make the the way that they play. And it starts becoming more. It becomes very. Um, I guess the word is probably curious as to how can you make this this movement work to be able to hit the golf ball to where they hit it. And that then challenges all their beliefs as to how you swing a golf club for, shall we call them, regular golfers. And so they then they, they then embark on a new journey. So for some of them who've been involved in the sport for, you know, maybe 20 years and they've only seen one way of doing it, all of a sudden a whole new world opens up to them. And then they, they I mean, they already understood that, you know, golf is only a little bit about the physical side. It's also about... You know, how do you get the golf club to the ball? So interesting. It's, it's an interesting process. And, and Mark gets it. And, you know, Christian obviously gets it. And yeah, there's a lot of other guys out there now as well. And I saw that Christian was celebrating the, I think, 100th inclusive coach yesterday. Um, yeah, today. Yeah. So, you know, that's all good, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's good. Yeah, I mean, look, it's great. It's good for what we do as well. Network of golf clubs that are not only providing the equipment and the access, but also the coaching element. So it gives us a natural pathway to some of these clubs. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And um, so, yeah, I think, you know, overall we're getting, in, we're going in the right direction and we're beginning to see some, some good changes and hopefully we'll see that, you know, over the next three or four years, we'll make as big a strides as we've made over the last three or four years. So yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly different than it was when we met in London, that's for sure. Oh, big time, big time. So tell me a little bit about um, what Mallorca was like. Uh, obviously, I've got a feedback from Mark and 
you know, from a few of the other guys. I saw Sebastian Laurenti last week. In fact, I think it was this time last week I saw him because he'd obviously he played there and then I saw him at the Al- Edgar Algarve Open. So, you know, what were your thoughts on it? Oh, look, I think overall it was a fantastic event. I mean, um, just to have so many people from around the world turn up to, to, to compete um, and just just that... You know the right smile that I had. You know when I was when we were playing, whether it was the practice rounds or the the actual competition, just looking around and everywhere you see there's there's paragolfers. Um, yeah. That was um, that was a thrill. I think um, you know clearly there's some great there's some great golf out of a wheelchair, and um, for me it's just interesting as, as it would be for a golf coach just looking at yeah how how all the different setups, one arm, two arm. Um, obviously for me, particularly the guys who had, um, hand impairments as well, even though there wasn't many, um, how they play. Um, and then probably the, one of the big, I mean, one of the challenges I think they had with that tournament was just not really knowing the spectrum of, um, of ability really. Um, so for me personally, you know, we, we spent, there was seven, um, Brazilians there. I think five of which who'd only played literally out of their manual wheelchairs before. Um, so they, some of those guys and girls actually, um, you know, learning how to play to the paragolfer, just seeing how much they enjoyed it, how much they got out of it, um, was pretty special too. Um, obviously, from a from a teething perspective, having a running a tournament like that, um, getting all of the equipment there, getting all of the just the logistics. They pretty much did everything themselves. So they 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 organised buses. They organised you know pickups from airports. You know they 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 took it all on um, in their stride. And of course, it wasn't all perfect. But yeah, nothing starts perfect, does it? It's always difficult at first, and you never know, really really know what you've got in front of you. Uh, but certainly, mm-hmm. you know, the next event they'll they'll be way better prepared for that. Uh, simply because yeah. they know the kind of cohort that they're going to they're going to bring together. So, yeah. but it's interesting what you mentioned a minute ago because you're quadriplegic, and as such, you play with you play in a paragolf, but you play with one hand. You play right hand, forehand. Yes. So, tell me a little bit about what you saw with the players that were there, because you would have had some players that play um, one-handed, some that you mentioned already, with some with two hands. You see anybody playing backhanded? No, not one. Um, that doesn't mean that they weren't there, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure, um, I'm pretty sure everyone was forehanded um, that I saw. Anyway, I've, I've, in Australia, I've seen we've, we've got guys who play backhand, um, but yeah, that was quite interesting. Not not, not a single one that I not, that I was aware of. Yeah, I, I just want to go a little bit into how maybe where you grew up to start off with and, you know, how you st- first started to, you know, get involved in sports, etc. because then we'll, we'll go a little bit later into your, your accident and then the things that have happened after the accident. And you've got a pretty, pretty uh, impressive story. It's a bit of a roller coaster ride, I guess, but maybe we should start at the beginning really, James. Yeah, look, I was, I was brought up um, predominantly in Sydney. I, um, I say that predominantly because I actually my parents were working in Asia, so I spent um, seven years living in Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur um, between the ages of well seven and ten, and then fifteen and nineteen. Um, like a typical Australian, very um, very involved with school sport from a young age. Everything from you know soccer, baseball, cricket, basketball, rugby. Um, really, my golf. The golf side of things didn't come to me till kind of university days. Um, I had I remember that my, my my best friend as a 15 year old lived actually on a golf course, and every time I went over to to hang out with him, I refused to go on the course because I thought it was a waste of time and I thought it was a boring sport. And um, and then really my my first proper game of golf came when I was at university, and an English. Um, godfather of mine came over from the UK and, and wanted to catch up and he said oh you know why don't we go and have a game of golf and I suggested that was probably a waste of time we'll go and have a have a beer or something um, <laughs> but he um, but he convinced me to come and have a hit and 
uh, borrowed a set of golf clubs off one of the guys in, at university and, and went out there and actually, for someone who hadn't really played golf before um, or a full round of golf before, I played okay and then I was absolutely hooked. So um, that was kind of my 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 first entry into golf, if you like. Where were you at university, James? At Sydney University, just, just outside um, Central Sydney. And, and what were you taking there? I was doing an economics degree, so... Um, like a lot of, com- comparatively to the UK, in uh, in Australia, you normally tend to t- to do a, a degree which is going to lead you into that that vocation. Yeah. Um, whereas in the UK, obviously, you know, you can go and pretty much do anything, and then go in and then change it up after you. You can go and do a biology degree and then become a banker, for right. instance. Yeah. Um, whereas in Australia, we tend to go go into what we think we're going to end up in. And you ended up a little bit in the sort of the financial industry. Yes, yeah, so I finished up my degree and I always, because I think I'd been exposed to a lot of trouble, almost, I also did about six months um, in the UK, a place called Solihull, um, when I was 15. I know Solihull my well. Father. Yeah, okay. Um, so it's surprising how many people know Solihull, it's unbelievable, but... Um, I end up I end up there because my father was actually um, went to school there and um, emigrated to Australia at a sort of 21 22 year old. Um, so I had that sort of first experience in the UK and we've, I've got relatives in the UK, so I'd been there a few times and really the, I always wanted to to go over and and work there for a little while, use it as a base to go travelling and things like that. Um, so in 2001, I made the move over there. Um, but it's also worth mentioning that at that time I was, you know, clinically obsessed with golf. Uh, I think I was playing off about, I was playing off about four between four and six, and uh, for a moment there, I um, I was sort of taking two paths. One, I started speaking to the golf courses around London to find out exactly what I had to do to, you know, potentially become a pro. Um, but I was also doing interviewing. Um, in the finance sector and it was on or around the 1st of December I got a phone call within 20 minutes of, of each other I got two phone calls one was from Roehampton Golf Course to come and be an assistant um, pro there and then the other one was from the Bank of Scotland um, for a graduate position and basically given that time of year um, you know, obviously the, the days were getting shorter the chance of me actually playing much golf in between working seven hours in the pro shop was going to be pretty limited, um, and 160 pounds a week didn't um, didn't look too appealing. So I ended up taking the banking job, and that was kind of history um, in terms of pursuing a career in golf. So what year was this? It's in 2001. And and literally, it was a question of the time of the year that you got the phone call. Well, I think it was. It, look, I think it was a bit of a pipe dream to be to be to become a golf pro. But I was there or thereabouts, handicap wise. And my understanding at that point was that you had to get down to two, and then you could start entering you know tournaments. And um, but you know, I'd never had a lesson. I I never really taken my golf that seriously. I only really played as a mostly social player. Um, so it was more probably like a 21-year-old fantasy rather than, you know, something that I'd you know, committed to in my head. Tell me then, so you, you, you then took the job in the bank and so yes. that, how did that progress then? Oh, look, the irony, the irony was, and I think a lot of my friends would, would, um, would reference this, but I ended up playing um, quite a lot of golf as a, as a corporate banker um, <laughs> back, in the hey, back in the heyday of um, of corporate hospitality, I think um, I think my record was 30, 32 golf days in a year um, on the books. Um, you know, we had, it was a Scottish bank, so we used to take clients up to you know Turnbury and um, Kings Barnes and all all sorts of places um, on golf tours. There was a very active um, golf club within the Bank of Scotland where we played at least once a month somewhere that was paid for by the for the employees to compete internally um and then socially and uh socially and um you know outside of outside of my the actual work environment i played you know a lot myself so um i did actually get to play quite a lot of golf but then 
professionally, I had a two-year uh, graduate program where I rotated through some of the corporate areas of the bank and then managed to get a job um, what was in leverage finance, so basically um, the debt side of private equity, um, which was booming at that time. So I had a very rich professional career where I was working um, on deals across between sort of 50 million and a, and a billion dollars um, businesses all across Western Europe. So, you know, one, one week we'd be looking at, a, you know, an oil and gas company in Norway. The next would be, you know, a, a storage business in in Spain. Um, so I got to a lot of travel. Um, and yeah, from an intellectual point of view, it was very stimulating. Life was good. Life was as, uh, as good as it gets, I think. I know I met you in London, I don't remember now, I think it was 2014, there thereabouts, and uh, I know that you seem very comfortable in London, so is that where you were living at the time? Yeah, look, I was living, um, I was based out of, um, I was in Richmond, just sort of a little bit out to the west, and then um, I ended up moving into this sort of more sort of Chelsea, Fulham area um, in the second part of it. So tell me what happened then, because my understanding, and I've, I've, I've done a little bit of research and obviously had the opportunity to speak to you um, on just a couple of occasions, really. But it seems to me that then you thought you would take some time out and go and have a little look around the world. And tell me a little bit about what that was all about. Yeah, look, I got to, my, I got to a point in my career where um, I sort of felt like I'd kind of proved myself. I got to... But what it was worth, it was vice president in an investment bank. Um, and I always you know, go and see how the other half lived. And um, as I said, I was a very passionate um, traveler, I think. In the first sort of seven or eight years I was in London, I had a goal of going to 10 new countries every year. Um, and one of the things, and I'd been lucky enough to spend a bit of time in Africa and just absolutely loved it. And um, so I went when I had this opportunity to, um, to take a bit of time off, I actually got made redundant, um, as part of the, you know, credit crunch or the GFC, we call it down here, um, the global financial crisis. And, um, I've been looking at doing something a bit more substantial with my life rather than, um, rather than banking. And, um, one of the things I was looking at was microfinance. Um, so that was one of the reasons I went to Africa. The original plan was to go overland, uh, from Cairo, from Cape Town all the way to Cairo, um, but yeah, unfortunately, after you know, just after th- three weeks of travelling, I'd sort of made my way through South Africa, Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, um, got to Zambia, and um, really one of my biggest passions was well, I've, got, I've always been lucky to have lots of passions, but one of the biggest ones was uh, was fishing as well, and part of the reason I'd gone to that part of Zambia was to try and hunt down and, and catch a, a thing called the tiger fish, which is a beautiful, um, beautiful type of fish that literally looks like a piranha has sort of got its wicked way with a tuna um, and got these very profound tiger stripes on the side of it. And um, with the day that I'd actually ha- end up breaking my neck, I'd been for quite a long run. Um, I used to do a lot of running as well, and um, it was about 40 degree heat. It was the first run I'd done in Africa. Uh, I think I must have overdone it. And later that night, I was catching some transport out to this remote um, island on the Zambezi River to go tiger fishing the next day. And not long after I arrived there, I was sitting in the sort of thatched hut with a couple of the other fishermen, and uh, all I remember was just feeling a little bit lightheaded and. Next thing I know, just as I was about to put my head down on the on the table in front, I, uh, I blacked out for a couple of seconds. And um, next thing I knew, I was um, lying basically motionless on the sand behind me, um, having fallen backwards off my the stool that I was sitting on and um, breaking my neck. Did you hit anything on the way down from the chair, or did it just was it the contact with the ground? Just the contact, just the awful, awkward. Um, I mean, it was onto onto sand as well. Um, it was just an, just fell awkwardly. Um, my understanding from from you know, talking to the people that I was who were in, in a tent with me that I just yeah literally the whole body kind of landed on on my head and um, yeah very simple very simple fall but obviously with you know pretty um, pretty catastrophic consequences. Tell me what was going through your mind when you you came around 
having fainted. So tell me what was going through your mind then. Oh, look, it was, it was pretty much just immediate shock. I think my first reaction was actually that um, I, you know, done something you know, seriously, seriously bad. But um, and I didn't have a lot of didn't have a lot of experience with spinal cord injury. But I knew, given the numbness, that that's what it, that's what had happened. And I didn't really have too much time to think about it because a couple of the guys who were in the tent with me sort of made these movements to try and move me. Um, so the first thing I was you know, trying to do was stop them from doing that. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I think just the yeah, the shock of actually something so simple having you know, literally you know, paralyzed me from my, my head down. Um, yeah, I really just focused on I'm trying to stay conscious, to be honest. Um, and you know, you know, so many different things start rushing through your through your head. Um, you know, how am I going to get off this island? Because um, we were literally, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Um, no one knew where I was. Really, no family members or anything. I was traveling by myself. I just met the guy next to me. I just met him in the hostel that morning. Um, so. Yeah, just a lot of unknowns and, and really, you know, how am I going to get myself out of this? What was the next practical steps then that, that happened? Uh, clearly, the people that you were with uh, helped to to try and find some kind of medical assistance, I guess. What actually happened next? Yeah, so the, the, what happens is, um, I don't know if you've ever been in Africa, but basically yeah. the, first question they are, the first question they kind of ask you is, well, what, what's your name? Because um, we literally just met all these guys, and then the second question is, well, um, do you have medical insurance? Right. Um, and if if the que- if that question's no, then the next question is, well, what's your credit card number? Because they're about to call a medivac um, helicopter, and if you don't have medical insurance, then someone's got to pay for it. Um, so that were the kind of practical steps, and then. In reality, what happened, we were on such a remote part of Africa and it was already dark that there was no way they were going to be able to get a helicopter in that night that we had to wait till the next morning. Um, so literally, I ended up lying there probably from about 7 o'clock at night all the way through till, um, yeah, about seal first light, say 6 o'clock the next day, um, which obviously wasn't ideal when you've got a spinal cord injury. And that's when I probably... You know the the fear side of things really kind of kicked in because I was just totally I was there were so many unknowns I was just totally petrified that if I actually went back went to sleep that I'd never kind of wake up um, and probably luckily in my case because I, I was so ignorant about spinal cord injuries that um, you know I probably didn't know just how dire position I was in to be honest that's got to have been what a very very long 11 hours or 12 hours oh it was literally one of the longest nights of my life I mean um, it was total darkness um, you know there's no power on this island um, and literally probably the only thing that really saved me from, from falling asleep there was these two amazing Israeli girls who had just finished their, their um, you know their conscription for army army work and they literally were so diligent. They sat right next to me, just giving me a little bit of water and small bits of food to, and talking to me all night um, just to you know, keep, me, keep me conscious. Um, so I was very lucky to have those, those two. And then the, the young fisherman, um, Steve, who I'd actually met that morning and, and taken out to that island because that's where he caught his first tiger fish the day before. He um he stayed by my side all night as well, and um, yeah, I think without those guys, I probably wouldn't have, wouldn't be here to be honest. I'll come back to it later, but you you obviously not only did your life change, but my sense is that the lives of the two Israelis and the life of Steve has changed quite dramatically as well. Um, yeah, be tough. Whatever it is, ten years or so. Um, yeah. So so once you've got you, you now get medivaced. Uh, out. What was the next stage then of, of the process? Well, the, the initial step was they they got the helicopter to Livingston. There's a hospital in Livingston, which is in the southern part of um, of Zambia, not far from Victoria Falls, which is the sort of closest hospital. Um, 
so I got up there first thing on sun, the Sunday morning, and then ended up having to spend most of the day there because they didn't have a um, a neuro neurological department there, um, and they couldn't really, you know, really help me from a from a medical point of view. They didn't have the expertise, so I had to wait through the day until kind of late afternoon, early evening for a medivac. Uh, jet to come pick me up and then take me down to Johannesburg where um, Mill Park Hospital is the, uh, the sort of preeminent um, spinal and um, sort of brain injury hospital um, in, in Southern Africa. Um, so yeah, again, a long wait. I understand that I've been given a fair bit of morphine and things like that. Um, so I was pretty groggy uh, throughout that day and obviously I hadn't you know, slept the night before. So um that part of it was a bit of a, um, yeah, a bit of a wash, really. At this stage, does your family know what's going on? Yeah. So what happened was, um, yeah, my father. Like, they called my father first thing. Um, well, I think they called him first thing in the morning when the paramedic got there, and that was sort of evening time in Australia, so late Sunday night. And then, um, yeah, basically the message was given that you know it was pretty pretty serious injury, and that you know. Any type of support would be um, over in Africa would be, would be perfect. And luckily, um, Dad had done a lot of travel through his through his years, so he um, he basically managed to get on a flight or book a flight for the first thing the next morning Australia time. Um, so he joined me the following day, so the Monday um, in hospital in Johannesburg, which is obviously pretty lucky. It's, just, it's worth mentioning actually, Steve Steve Barrero, the guy that the African guy that was with me. That, he actually came all the way back with me, so he was in the helicopter. He came on the medivac jet um, through the night. Uh, he never left my side. Um, basically, what happens is with a spinal cord injury, they do an assessment on on what the damage is. Um, in my case, I actually broke the two vertebrae, and so the first thing they do is they go and operate um, to basically fuse those those vertebrae so they can they can. Um, Obviously, repair themselves. So that was a that was an operation. The, the, the first, well, the first full night I was in hospital, and then, um, yeah, really, you're in a you're in a quite a critical state because you're in intensive care for the first kind of week, week and a half, because you lose most of your lung capacity. Um, obviously, you're, you're immobile, you're incontinent, um, your blood pressure is all over the shop. So, so it was about five weeks before we um I was able to. He sort of signed off medically stable enough that I could return to Australia. So you go back to Australia. What happens then? So back to Sydney. Um, there's you get transferred to the spinal spinal unit of one of the the major hospitals in Sydney, Royal North Shore, where um, I was there for about two weeks, and then transferred to a specific spinal rehabilitation unit um, in a place called Royal Rehab in uh, in Ride, which is um, that was seven months, seven months, um, in rehab, uh, living, living in rehab till about sort of, July, this is sort of July time in 2009. Quite a journey. Yeah, medically, medically and, uh, physically, yeah, quite a long way to, um, a lot of, a lot of ground to cover. And then what about emotionally and psychologically? Because that's a pretty long journey as well, I guess. Yeah, Tony, I think it's, it's very interesting. I think, um, one of the things that I got, my head around very, very early on in the piece was that um, there was there's a lot of upside with spinal cord injury. Even though you've you've had you know all of your all of your faculties knocked out below your, below your head with a with a with a high neck break like that, um, I, I you know obviously had a couple of nights in in hospital the first couple of nights where I was you know pretty. Um, yeah, in a pretty bad way, just thinking about, you know, how it's going to affect not only my life, but my loved ones, my family, you know, whether I was going to be having to be fed, you know, every meal, you know, whether I was ever going to be able to walk again, you know, have sex again, um, you know, run along the beach, swim, all these things that, um, you know, flush through your mind. Um, I even, you know, even the first couple of nights I remember, Thinking, what building my repairing myself was actually by visualizing things, um, 
and that's how I started. You know, I, I sort of started to put all of those negative energy aside, and I thought to myself, well, you know, they're not going to help me get out of this. Um, I need to use all of the energy I've got to try and, um, you know, repair. And I mean, I've told this story a lot, but I literally thought um, when I was lying there in hospital by myself at night, I started doing visualization and, and golf was one of the things I used to do. I used to literally pick a golf course that I knew quite well. Um, the one that I played the most actually in the UK was the Berkshire, just outside London. Mm-hmm. Well, the two the two courses there, I'd literally, I'd literally play around a whole round of golf in my head, like you know, shot by shot, you know, hole by hole. Um, I'd obviously shoot two or three under every time that I, when I did that. But, yes, um, um, but that's how I started my repair and that's really um, – I had this sort of mantra every time I, you know, started to waver towards negative headspace that I'd try and, try and snap myself out of it and say, well, look, all that energy should be getting, um, getting going towards recovery. So I was quite lucky in that respect. Where did you get that from, James? Because that's not, that's kind of not normal human nature to to do that. Um, had, had you learned that before? Had you been using visualization before how, how did you come up with that idea uh I, I don't it's funny i've been asked that question a lot um i think there's there's a couple of answers first and foremost i hadn't done a lot of meditation or anything like that before um but one one thing that my um my father and i and some of the physios when we were first in hospital in south africa kind of decided that you know the, hum, the human body is meant to be moved um, so my dad and other people, you know, spent sort of six, seven hours a day when I was lying there with no movement, you know, moving, moving my legs, moving my hands, keeping the joints limber. Um, and I would, because I couldn't physically move anything, I would, you know, in time with my father moving my legs, I would actually try and, you know, straighten my leg or bend my, use my, my hamstrings or wiggle my fingers as they were doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, because it just, because it was just for me, there's no spinal cord injury. There's no kind of um, set medical um, procedure to try and re- recover. They kind of you get neurological um, repair as as the spinal cord actually, in theory, um, the swelling goes down. So some of the some of the pathways for the nerves actually um, almost reopen as the swelling goes down. Yep. Um, but yeah, for me it was just a, a layman's way of you know thinking. Well, instead of just lying here, let's do what we can. And, and they were the two things that we could that we could someone could move my limbs and, and B I could visualize. Um, but then to answer your question about why I got my head around it, I think, and I've tried to I've tried to really put my finger on it um, over the years. But I think the thing that overwhelmingly um, I comes back to is that I had. I've always had a very um, looked at the always had great perspective in their lives. So even um, you know things like growing up and living in a in a Western country, um, you know, having a very good idea and, and obviously traveling, being exposed to all sorts of cultures and um, you know whether it's famine, whether it was you know um, great um, you know, living in Malaysia where you you know literally you. you you can go to the markets and see people with nothing, you know, living in the jungle. Um, you know, I think we we always had a very good perspective on our, our how lucky we were to be in the position, and whether whether that's you know roof over your head, whether it's financial, whether it's a good education. Um, and so even even in that ridiculous situation where you've got you know basically everything you know has been taken away from you. Um, I still had a, you know, still had a great support network. I still had, um, you know, a lot of people behind me. Um, yeah, and I think that's probably what I, what I, what I see now when I see a lot of other people with spinal cord injury. A lot of people don't just lose, lose perspective and can't find any positive. And for me, I was very lucky just to um, still have that ability to, to, to look for the positives. We sort of moved into the rehab stage now and to the post-accident stage of, of this conversation. And, I mean, I think what's inspired me when I've done some of your back information, your back story, so to speak, 
has been that you have exactly what you've just said. You've got a good support network around you and you seem to have got lots of friends that have really gathered around and, and really helped you. So tell me a little bit about what that process was about rebuilding your life because clearly you've gone on to do some, some pretty impressive things and still do. Uh, so tell me a little bit about that, that process. Well, I think, I think the, the first and foremost part is that um, as some of the things we were doing from a rehabilitation perspective um, seemed to start working, um, i.e. Movement, movement came back. Um, you know, I'll never know whether it was some of the visualization, some of the movement that Dad did early on, whether it was the more sort of normal Western physiotherapy. Um, but it was a common, you know, you're in this position where you literally throw um, the kitchen sink at, at the recovery. So, you know, I, I looked at, you know, not just the, the Western, Western medicine, the physiotherapy and the occupational therapy and things like that. I looked at things like acupuncture, Western, sorry, um, Chinese, Chinese medicine. I even tried, you know, singing lessons to try and, um, to get my core strength and, um, and get my lungs, um, stronger. Um, so I was really just trying to build a program where every waking hour, um, that I had the energy to, to focus on physical recovery. Um, we put it together. So, um, and that, that included all, you know, all of the friends network, all of the family network, there was a rotation, you know, we probably did 50, 60, you know, hours of, of rehab of some description every, every week. Um, you know, all day Saturday, half of Sunday, it was literally like an obsession and, um, it was like a full-time job and I, that's, that's why I treated it. It was, it was an obsession with getting better, um, and it was anyone who, anyone who basically questioned me on that, um, I wouldn't have, I, I didn't do one of them around, um, to the point that, you know, I had some arguments with my physiotherapist, um, who were trying to tell me that, you know, I might not recover to the, to the extent that I was. Um, so yeah, it was about building a program and resourcing that program as fully as we could, um, not just with medical experts, but all the other people as well. And I think within that, um, you know, early on, I, I was sort of refused to go and do a lot of the things that um, that I loved because I just thought I'd do them when I was better. So whether that was golf, whether that was um, other passions, you know, fishing, um, travel, I, um, yeah, I just refused to, to do them because I thought I'll just do them when I get better. Um, and but they, but they but they were the they were the driving forces that got me out of bed every morning, you know, obviously the simple things like being able to feed yourself, being able to walk, you know, enjoy the, the sea, um, you know, get on a plane, um, all the basic things that, um, you know, that I, I had in my life and I had, a, as I said, a very full, rich, um, you know, dynamic life where I, you know, was probably as free as anyone um, and I wanted all that, all that back because it was, it was a bloody good life. <laughs> You, you you used the term obsession a second ago and, and you used it earlier in our conversation when you talked about golf. You said you were almost obsessive with your golf. Is that something that has just been part of you since birth? You, you've been obsessive about, you know, things that you really want to do and I'm not saying obsessive in a bad way, but, you know, you've really been committed to whatever it is that you want to do. Um, I'd say I'd say for the thing, you know, I'd say yes, but I would also say that... Um, it was mostly studying or, um, you know, making money or <clears throat> things like that. I was obsessive um, about, yeah, getting better at the things that I that I loved. Um, you know, I remember there's a, there's a, a story that I've told that when I was in my sort of pretty obsessive golfing days in London, I went into the office on a Thursday one day and um, the guys were all like, oh, you know, you've got a day booked off tomorrow, you know, what are you going to do? And I'd, I'd totally forgotten about what it was. That I that I'd booked the day off, and um, but I thought, I mean, nonetheless, I'll 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 take it off. And anyway, so I rang one of the golf courses near near where I lived, um, called Coombe Hill, actually. Yep. Um, and I never played there. And I rang up and said, oh, you know what time can I take off in the in the morning? And the guy's like, oh, look, you know, we get here by seven, you know, seven, but you know, we can play off whenever you want. And um, they said there was a, basically a day rate for the golf course. 
Anyway, so I um I got there first light, and by midday I'd played three three rounds of golf, um back to back, and um, but just after midday, and um and um you know I came into the came into the pro shop, and the guys like oh you know how'd you find it, and you know even the golf pro you know nearly fell off his seat when I when I when he told when I told him I played three rounds back to back, um, and the guys in the office you know the next day were you know obviously even more um even more uh surprised you know and am i most obsessed with golf you know so play 18 holes in the in the british summertime i'd play 18 holes before work tee off at quarter to five get in the office for eight and then i'd leave the office at 5 30 and play 18 holes after after work from six to nine or six to nine thirty so um yeah like i think um with golf with some other sports and and definitely with travel i've always done a lot of travel um i'm obsessive about the things that i that i enjoy for sure there's no question that seems to have helped in your recovery. And tell me a little bit about what's happening now in your life, James, because you obviously have a number of things that I'm, I'm interested in hearing about. You, you've got your Empower Golf, which I think I'd like to know a little bit more about. Uh, it's not something that I'm fully aware of. I, I understand it a little bit, but I'd like to hear it from yourself. as uh, about yep. what that's all about and what it does. Um, I know that you have an involvement with the Puffin Foundation as well, um, so I'd like to hear a little bit about that as well. So you, you, you can choose where you start, so I'll, I'll leave it to you. Yes, I think I think the best place to start is that when I – so while I'm going through this whole rehab, you know, very intensive, you know, four or five years, pretty much full-time physical rehabilitation, I'm, I'm obviously starting to think about what I want to do um, with my life outside of rehab. And I think – the first, the first, um, there was a couple of things that drove the decision. One was um, seeing, um, seeing what I call how powerful um, exercise to recovery was for me, um, i.e., using um, all types of human motion um, to try and get you know physical response, um, not just for the physical repair, but also you know psychologically. I looked at different things that I wanted to do to help other people. Oh, and I and I got exposed to a lot of people with disabilities who weren't um, nearly as lucky um, as I was in terms of, you know, education background, financial support, um, financial, um, you know, comfortable house, um, great family, friends, etc. And there was this big population that I really wanted to help. Um, so I looked into um, and one of the other things in the rehab part of my my journey, there wasn't probably as not, as much resource as people wanted in some respects. So I looked into um, the building rehabilitation centres for people with, you know, chronic um, and, and catastrophic um, injuries. I looked at, um, I was doing a lot of gym work, so I looked at setting up um, like disabled friendly gyms um, and really through my personal journey back to, to golf um, and as we touched on before, the, the power of golf as a sport, people with disabilities, um, I wanted to address that as well. Um, I got pretty close with a friend of mine to the gym idea, um, but one of the other investors basically fell, fell away at the last, well, actually pushed me out of it um, at the last minute, so that fell, that fell by the wayside. Um, the rehabilitation center, we did a lot of research into that, um, and that didn't actually happen back then, but um, so one one of the things that um, I didn't pull off um, at the start of my recovery, but have been heavily involved in since or recently, is that we um, set up a spinal cord resort um, in Sydney, which is basically a an eighteen eighteen unit um, four and a half star um, facility that is basically on on one of the beaches in Sydney. And it's a um, I'm when I'm on the sort of management advisory committee there. I'm an am- ambassador for it. It's called um, Sargood S A R G O O D on Collaroy. And really, what it is is a, a lifestyle independent centre. Um, you've obviously had a bit of exposure to people you know, with disabilities through the golf, but things like when you travel, um, you know, most of the time I've got to take a carer, obviously um, wheelchairs. Um, for the shower, things like that, uh, and this centre basically has been built for people who are in chairs. So you turn up, you go into your room, you get an iPad, 
which basically controls everything from the blinds, the lights, the air conditioning, the heights, heights of the toilet, heights of the bed, heights of the benches. Um, so it's basically like a, a lifestyle center where people can um, learn about, well, first of all, most have a very relaxing time. They can go swimming. One of our one of our adaptive golf programs is next door. If they want to learn how to do adaptive kayaking, cycling, fishing, quad biking, all the equipment's there. Um, so that's something that um, I've been involved in the last couple of years. Which um, it's basically like a world first. So there's nowhere like it anywhere around the world that um, does exactly what that does for people with spinal cord injury. It's only it's only been open for for two years, but it's um yeah it's unbelievable because you know. It's built built so that people can go there with their family or their loved ones or their friends. They can all stay there together. They have carers there, so if you need help in the morning to get out of bed or, um, you know, it's all basically set up so that you can have a a great, um, you know, purpose-built vacation but also learn about, you know, they've got gyms there, they've got um, yoga classes, they've got, if you want to learn about, you know, sexual function after spinal cord injury, they have courses, they have courses on how to get back to work, university, um, whatever you really want, they'll, um, they can deliver it for you. Um, so that, that was, that's what, that's sort of, by the, that's sort of the one part of what I do. And then the Puff and Magic Foundation was actually set up um, for me and other people with quadriplegia in Australia. Um, Basically, because I was injured in a overseas, even though I had you know, medical insurance, all that really covered was the repatriation um, to Australia, and then a very, very small um, amount um, sort of payout. And the the Australian medical system at, at that point um, was relatively limited for people who have spinal cord injuries that don't have them either at work or in motor motor, motor vehicles. Um, so the Puffer Magic Foundation was basically like a private foundation that was set up um, to support me. Um, and I, by default, my family cover some of the financial um, uh, expenses that come with being in a wheelchair, um, but also especially in that recovery phase, so paying for um, extra physios, um, any type of rehabilitation, um, equipment, um, massage, um, all the costs that weren't covered by the government at that point, and then, and and the the way the funding was, well, the quick story about why it's called the Puffer Magic Foundation is because when I was, when I was um, traveling my first one of my first trips to the UK, well, when I was in Europe was to Iceland, um, to go puffin hunting, and um, yeah, basically, um, probably one of the most memorable days that I've ever had traveling was you know dangling off a North Atlantic. Um, volcanic island with a crazy couple of crazy Icelanders trying to catch these um, these puffins with these like, long poles with nets on the end. It's almost like you're butterfly catching when you're a kid, <laughs> and um, and um, yeah, and catching these puffins. And and um, ever, ever since then, they're one of my favourite animals. And when I had my accident, um, you know, going through putting a foundation together, where you know having the James Gribble Foundation was a bit naff. So um, my they they call it they use use the word puffin and my sister said well you know you need magic to get out of the um the situation you're in you're in so puffin magic foundation was was born um and then really really since then um so that's ten years ago now um it was it was established on my birthday in 20, 2009 um which is the 13th of January and basically since then all of um you know people that I know. 150 different fundraisers around the world, whether it's people running marathons, you know, big fundraising events um, like balls and, you know, black tigers. We've had, um, you know, people hike across Greenland, you know, all to raise money um, to effectively fund, you know, the, the ups, the, all of the wheelchair-related um, parts of my life. Um, but then we also... We've also raised um, quite a lot of money for spinal cord research, both in the UK and Australia. And then we also now um, support other people with disability with, with spinal cord injury. So sometimes with equipment, um, 
you know, personal training sessions, physiotherapy, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's the Puffer Magic Foundation. There's a couple of other things as well that, that interest me because, and I'm looking forward to seeing this when it becomes available, but you're almost finished with the film if you've not already done so, um, which is in search of the tiger fish, tiger fish, I think it's called, or something similar to that. Oh, look, one of the, um, one of the things among among all the things I've, I've mentioned to you about passions was um, that drove me was to get myself back into a physical, psychological and emotional state where I could return to where I had my accident and try and catch the, um, the tiger fish that I, you know, I didn't even have a chance to, you know, to, to put a line in when I, when I was first in Africa. Um, so really, you know, over all those years, that was another big goal to go back to Africa, grab the fish, see where I was, but also go into the hospital and show them that, you know, some of the guys in that first hospital were quite brutal in terms of my diagnosis, not being able to walk or ride a bike and all these things to, again. And I really wanted to show them that actually um, that's what I, where I got to. Um, so as, as you mentioned earlier, you know, most of the times I wanted to go and you know, since my accident, I want to go and try something or do something. There's been a lot of, you know, the close friends or family put their hand up. And last year, I was absolutely privileged to go back to Africa and pretty much retrace um, the steps that I took um, to the to the accident. I literally got to go back and um, to the to the exact spot where my um, where I fell off the chair. The chair, the same the same chair, still there. Pretty much hadn't hadn't changed the whole environment. Um, and yeah, the, one of the big goals was obviously to go out and try and catch one of the um, one of these tiger fish, um, which you know I'll tell you, but which was you know probably one of the most kind of emotional moments that I've that I've had. Um, my sister was right next to me, and Steve Barrero, the the guy who originally came to to um, to Jungle Junction, the island that I was on fishing with me, he was right next to me as well. Um, so that was a tremendously powerful, um, you know, life experience. You know, probably will never be, will never be replicated. Um, and then also just having three or four of my really good friends who've been there with me um, from a rehab and social perspective since, well, not just since my injury, but you know, since a young age. And we all met, we all went back to where I um, where I actually fell and. Um, you know, met up with the, the owner of the island who, who was there the night and just sort of got to trade stories and, um, you know, that was a very emotional but uplifting time. I think it wasn't, I wasn't doing it there, doing it for some sort of um, rehabilitative purpose. It was more like a celebration of the fact that I could actually get back there and do that. Um, and to do that with some great friends and family was, was um, you know, very, very special. And then finally, you know, being able to turn up at the, ho- at the hospital um, and I contacted my surgeon and the anaesthetist who had, had helped me, who I was quite close to, and to be able to get out of the taxi and um, and you know walk, um, well assisted walking into the hospital where I um, where I broke my neck, you know, all those years ago. Um, that was a very powerful thing as well. And I think when um, when the the whole trip was discussed, one of my very good friends who's in the film industry. We'd been, she'd been discussing doing a, you know, doing a film like a more like a Hollywood film about my story and about my recovery and and all that entailed and return to golf and things. And when the opportunity came up to come and film, um, you know, our trip back to Africa, that was um, an opportunity that we just couldn't miss. And and really, the whole idea with Tigerfish is to, um, you know, to try and inspire people that you know even when. You have a pretty catastrophic injury, you know. If you um, if you put your mind to it, you know, you can, and you've got the right people around you, you can you can go hopefully back and do some pretty, pretty amazing things. And and that was why we end up doing it because we, you know, trying to help people again, trying to give them a little bit of hope if that's what they need in their life to to um, whether it's a spinal cord injury or a sick child or a horrible boss or whatever it is in their world that seems unsurmountable. We're just trying to um give them that little bit of hope that might, might change their life. I think it's interesting that you said that you went back to the bar and it was almost exactly the same and it just it seems to me that the world doesn't change very much and yet our place within the world obviously can change quite dramatically 
in the space of seconds. Um, tell me, Unbelievable. Tell me, where, where can we see the uh, the documentary? So right now, it's still being um, it's still being edited. Um, so we're we kind of hand on heart, we're a bit delayed. The lady who who's doing it, um, she was doing a lot of it pro bono, so she had to sort of do some commercial sort of work to get herself in a position to to get it done. Um, but to answer your question, it's probably not going to be finished until kind of March next year. Um, and the avenues of distribution we're looking at is um, hopefully like a Netflix or something like that will pick it up. Um, that would be like best case scenario or Amazon Prime or something like that. That would be best case. Um, otherwise, we would do um, – we might get like a, a BBC or a local – um, television stations in in Australia. Um, otherwise, it'll be you know online, um, you know through some some other distribution platform. Okay, well, keep me informed on that one because we'd obviously like to tra- help try and you know, distribute that if we possibly can do to the widest audience. At least inform them of it. Thank you, thank you. I've got a couple of questions here that I'd just like to to ask you, which would be. I suppose kind of closing questions really more than anything, but I think very important. So what was the worst advice that you ever received during this process of rehabilitation? Well, the the most memorable um, was when I when I was waking, coming to after my, um, my surgery. And as I alluded to earlier, there was a, a very um, you know, passionate and very friendly anaesthetist um, who was probably the first person, well, was the first person I, I saw. And I remember um, waking up and I was started talking about, you know, riding my bike and running again. And and she just looked at me deadpan. She was like a really vibrant, you know, attractive, smiley woman. And she just lost um, all of the sort of emotion in her face. And she just said, James, you're never going to ride a bike or, or walk again. And... I, I bring that up, not, you know, as, I, as I'm saying, it's probably not the worst advice. It was probably in some ways the thing that drove me quite a lot to prove her wrong. Um, but yeah, that's probably the first thing that comes to mind. It was probably the worst advice, but in some ways quite good. Tell me about golf and what it means to you because it clearly is a very big part of what you do and about your life and about who you are today. I think for me, golf... Um, is a bit like life. I think it's it's a kind of emotional roller coaster that happens, um, you know, over eighteen holes or nine holes, and um, you know, I think that's what it teaches you a lot about. You know, your temperament, um, your um, how you deal with pressure, um, and I think it's a very that's probably the most the most powerful thing is the psychological side of things. Um, I think. That's what that's what kind of keeps me keeps you coming back because every every time you go out there it's like a new new opportunity to to get on that that roller coaster. Um, but for me, it's just a pure happy place. Um, even if I'm not playing my best, um, I probably even when I was able-bodied, you know, when I first stepped out on that tee, there was just relief and this just um, you know excitement that I was about to start a start around. No one could. No one was going to be able to get hold of me. Phones go off, um, and whether you're playing socially, competitively, or or by yourself, um, yeah, just the opportunity to, to shoot better than you did the, the time before. Um, yeah, it's just it's irreplaceable for me as a as a um, as a recreation. Um, and I think you know when I. When I find myself in daily life getting irate or frustrated with, you know, whether it's work or family or friends or whatever, if I as soon as I book around a golf and go out there, like my whole my, my whole psych, psyche changes, you know, and um, yeah, it's overwhelming. What it the only thing that quite change that changes my um my headspace as much as probably jumping into the into the salt water, um. Or jump on a plane to go somewhere exotic. <laughs> Travel's still there, eh? Oh, big time, big time. 
If you could magically be with someone who has gone through a similar situation to yourself, maybe it's in the minutes or the seconds that they have the accident that creates the paralysis, or maybe it's when they wake up in the hospital bed. But if you could magically be with someone who has a similar disability, what advice would you want to offer them? Um, I'd probably... I'd probably say try try as much as you can to forget the negative energy and focus on the on using every bit of energy you've got to get better. You know, focus on how you might be able to to, to do things, not why why you cannot. Um, that's probably the biggest things because you can. You can always find a way. It might not be exactly how you picture something happening in your head, but you can always find a way to to, to achieve things. Great advice, James. James, it's been fascinating chatting to you. Um, we've shared a coffee in Marble Arch. Um, I need to yeah. share a beer with you in Sydney Keys or somewhere similar, somewhere as exotic as that. The other thing I do, just again, just to... I do a bit of um, like motivational. I always find it hard to say motivational, inspirational speaking, but I do a bit of that with corporates and, and other organisations. So whether it's schools or, um, that's one of the things I enjoy doing quite a lot as well. Um, and talking about my experiences or goal setting or um, overcoming adversity, etc. So yeah, they can, people can contact me or contact me through Puff and Magic as well. Um, and then the other thing, I did, whether this is part of this conversation, but just very, very quickly for your benefit on Empower Golf. Um, so there's a, there's a group of five of us. Um, so basically, we're, it's a not-for-profit, um, but we also, um, so we work with, the whole idea was to basically support people with, with disabilities, whether they're returning to golf or never trying golf um, across Australia. Um, so right now we put about 5,000 people through our clinics nationally per year. Um, so we run we run um, pretty much a clinic a day somewhere in Australia for between 20, you know, 10 and 20 um, dis- people with disabilities. Um, and then, so there's two, there, well, there's three major parts of what we do one is so service delivery whether that's golf lessons um golf clinics um you know consulting on equipment and um adaptive devices two is we set up inclusive golf golf clubs or golf facilities so we call them empower golf hubs so we've got 15 of those nationally which basically have been signed off for physical um, access whether that's clubhouse pro shop car park, golf course. Um, the second part of, of um, being an inclusive hub is you've got to have the equipment. So at the very minimum, um, adaptive golf clubs, grouping solutions, and a paragolfer. And thirdly is having um, a registered All Abilities Pro or a golf pro that's about to do all the All Abilities coaching um, so that People can obviously get a get a lesson, um, and those, and the commitment from the club is that they'll that pro will run at least a monthly disabled golf clinic, so people can continue to um, to access the game, improve the game, um, and then finally looking at tournaments. So we have run some smaller kind of inclusive tournaments, but looking at how we work with you know the likes of Golf Australia and PGA to to set up a more sustainable multi disability. Um, network of um, state and national tournaments rather than um, you know the way that it's run at the moment with you know all the different disabilities you know blind, deaf, amputee and special olympics running their own tournaments my my wish with Empower Golf was always to you know cater for people with all disabilities whether they're physical, psychological or anything in between um, and my biggest goal with Empower Golf was to, within reason, not have 90 to 95% of Australians um, across the country 
within you know an hour, an hour and a half of an Empower Golf hub where they could get a lesson, they could you know use adaptive equipment, but also act- access the facilities. Um, and in my mind, that's probably somewhere between 30 and 50 golf courses in um, strategically placed geographic and um, population-driven um, cities. James, it's been fascinating, as I say, chatting to you. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it, and we will keep in touch. I'll definitely, um, definitely grab you at that point if you're around. Yeah, well, let's try and make um, sure that we make that happen. My sincere thanks to our partners, Ping Golf, who have made this podcast possible. Ping helped golfers around the world to play their best. For more information about Edgar, please visit edgargolf.com and stay tuned for the next Tough Love and Second Chances podcast.